Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Plan B Success. Today we have with us Keel Hunt, who's an editorial columnist for the Tunisian, is also an author and a historian. His latest book, The Family Business, How Ingram Transformed the World of Books, is out there, and we'll be talking about that as well. So welcome, Keel. Thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words. Well, um, I live in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, uh, uh, except for when I was away at school. Um, I've lived in, in Nashville and Middle Tennessee most of my life. Um, uh, my family is now here. We, we've all lived away. Uh, and then happily returned to uh, our hometown. Uh, that is my, uh, our, our adult children, son, daughter, uh, who've lived uh, in California and Washington, D.C. in their careers. And as of uh, six, seven years ago, we've uh, uh, all returned uh, home. And so at the time, you know, at one time, we, my wife, uh, Marcia, and I would have to uh, hop on an airplane to go to somebody's home for holidays. And now we, we are maximum 10 minutes drive <laughs> uh, without having to go to either coast. Uh, so that's, that's a very happy thing. In um, my, uh, my career has been... Um, as, as you said, uh, newspaper journalism at the Tennessean, which is the morning newspaper in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and my column uh, will frequently run in the other Gannett newspapers in Tennessee, uh, in Memphis and Knoxville and so forth. And, um, but I've come back to that as a columnist uh, when my, when my first book was published in 2013, and, and there have been now two books since then, total of three published. And, uh, and so it takes me uh, very happily back to, uh, you know, to early aspects of my career in journalism, and uh, which, in, you know, which is very pleasurable. I get to uh, learn uh, a lot about different people and periods and uh, and what I've written is nonfiction, you know, I mean, similar to uh, daily print journalism. <clears throat> and, um, and so uh, I've just, can, you know, enjoyed how my, my education has continued in this way about uh, life and culture. Now you've studied journalism, you've been a reporter, you've been an editor, you've been a research director, speech writer. Uh, for, you know, political campaigns and such as well. You've kind of seen the evolution of uh, journalism over the years, you know, from print media to digital print media right now. What's the journey been like? And what do you see as some of the major changes that have occurred over the years? That's a great question, Rajiv. Um, well, in, th there's certainly new technology, um, and which has continued to evolve, uh, arguably as journalism has ever since uh, Gutenberg and the innovation of movable type. Um, 
um, so the technology has changed uh, with with new uh, platforms, we'll call them. Um, uh, but but on another deeper level, um, it's it's interesting to me to realize that uh, journalism, uh, reporting the news, uh, uh, is still very much the same uh, job, the same exercise. Um, you know, the best uh, newspaper reporters and editors now, you, you may read what they uh, produce uh, on various screens like this one uh, or on your phone. Um, and, but, but how they got to the point of having a story to tell in many, many respects is the same task, same job uh, uh, involving the you know, the development of your, your sources of information. Um, the, you know, the, just like we're doing here, the interview process um, is still very much the same. Now, some of the, particularly electronic media, um, shorter, briefer, you know, there's not, uh, a, a news story may be seven, eight uh, paragraphs. Um, and uh, I, I've always, you know, favored the, uh, long form, you know, whether it's a long article in a magazine uh, or certainly a book. Um, and I'm impressed with anybody who does that. Um, one of my favorite um, courses in, in school was, uh, thinking back, was, uh, was a course in magazine writing, you know, which is certainly a a magazine piece is typically longer form than a newspaper story, uh, particularly today. Uh, but, but that that was a very helpful course to me. My my, my professor um, at Northwestern in the in the Medill School of Journalism was was John Bartlow Martin, and he had been um, the biographer of Adlai Stevenson, Senator. Governor Senator Adlai Stevenson in Illinois, and um, you know, very adroit in the in the long form story, and 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 both he and his course <laughs> made a big impression on me, and I've never forgotten that. So so in many ways, the the formats, the platforms have changed and evolved, and, and I have no doubt they will continue to, but the basic uh, job is. Um, is the same gathering facts, information, trying to be true to your sources and your purpose, and then uh, only how that story is eventually uh, read or consumed, we would say, superficially changed. Now, how was, uh, you know, how was your career as a research director and a speechwriter uh, for Lamar Alexander, you know, during his bid for governorship? How was that different from that of being an editor of a newspaper. Right, well, um, in, in a couple of important ways, uh, I'm thinking. Uh, for one thing, in, in newspaper work, uh, you, you have to be very uh, determined and, and clear on how your job is not to take sides. I mean, there's a whole other realm, you know, called advocacy uh, journalism or advocacy report, and, and I, I appreciate that. But but in the main, um, whether you're um, you know a brand new 
reporter covering the police department or the uh, school board or the local election commission, you know, you, your, your job is to really get um, uh, a feel uh, and tell all sides of the story. You know, we used to say both sides of the story. Um, and um, as reporting has evolved, uh, we know there are in many cases more than two sides, uh, not just a pro and con, there are different gradations and subtleties. Um, but, but, and even in terms of um, hard, you know, we, we, we will say hard news reporting. Um, and so you want to be fair, you want to be balanced. I mean, say, for example, you're covering a local labor dispute, you know, a, a strike um, uh, where clearly there, there, you know, there's a management side, there's a labor side of the story. And actually, that's a very good training, uh, you know, where those stories occur. Um, uh, good preparation for understanding, well, there are just not just two sides, but there are two uh, in interpretations of the same set of facts in many cases and understanding the subtleties, you know, as a part of your job as a reporter and, and, and as an editor. Um, when I made the transition in 1970, uh, fall of 1977 to um, uh, from the I left the Nashville morning newspaper staff and joined the campaign staff of Lamar Alexander. Uh, he was he was running for governor, as you say, and uh, um, and 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 was elected in in 1978. Um, he uh, and later in his career, he he was elected to the United States Senate, and he just left office uh, after three terms. Um, in January of this year. Um, but, but one of the first things I realized on some level, I, objectively, I knew, you know, this would be different uh, set of tasks, but, you know, I, I learned pretty quickly that you, you, you know, I, I was now taking sides, taking sides. And I remember um, thinking prior to that point that, you know, that, probably newspaper journalism was the only way I could make a living in which I would be uh, completely honest and, you know, and, 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 and do right by fact. Well, but the fact is um, that was not the true. I mean, you know, there are different ways to make a honorable living in, in our culture <laughs> and, and politics and, policy is important work too. And I, I remember the, at the, I remember the point when I came to that, you know, realization, I didn't deny it or anything, you know, out loud, but I, but prior to that point, but, but it was, um, it was an important thing to realize and, um, you know, that you can work on policy. Uh, and now that was a very different period than now. I mean, when I, when, uh, Alexander was governor. It was from, he was elected in 78, took office in January 79 and served for eight, you know, the maximum eight years. And um, he, and therefore our staff uh, were involved uh, together with the state legislature on developing a lot of, you know, what turned out to be important uh, policy uh, for schools and healthcare and the environment. And, you know, coming to decisions and uh, reconciling different points of view, that, that too 
and uh, you know is important, very important. And and, it, and actually, you know, you have a, uh, something in common there in that work with again what the um, newspaper reporter, the magazine writer, is trying to do um, in most cases. Um, now, I, I point out that that was a different time. I think we, you know, now we have uh, so much uh, um, skepticism, you know, and, and, and controversy about, well, how are news media uh, being true to their job? And um, is, is objectivity still uh, even uh, a proper goal anymore as opposed to advocacy? And I think it is. Um, uh, one, one of my own editors, well, well my very first uh, and most important editor was, uh, was the late uh, John Sigenthaler, and he was uh, editor and later publisher of the Tennessean newspaper in Nashville, and he later became the founding uh, editorial uh, director of, of USA Today. And, and I remember John saying that um, he took the position that, that pure objectivity is not possible for human beings. <laughs> and, and, and the best you can do is to, is to be determined to uh, have fairness and honesty as your, as your motivators. And that in that way, you will arrive at a full story. Um, and so we could go on for hours about that subject. But so uh, that transition was an important one for me. You know, one, one of the things that we have been hearing often over the last couple of years is this whole concept of fake news. You know, fake news uh, that's made up as a result of uh, social media and the social interactions we have online. Now, was there fake news when we, you know, when we interacted much more through print media? Uh, you know, that was, that was our way of getting news. Uh, did you face any of these things during those times? What can you tell us about that? Um, no, I don't, I don't remember that. I, I, don't, I think the environment, I would even say the political environment was very and starkly different uh, from when I was an active uh, journalist uh, in the sense of working in a daily newspaper. Uh, it's, I mean, getting the story, it, it's hard work, you know, and, 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 would you, um, would there be an occasional mistake? Of course. Uh, I remember the first time in a news story in print that I got, I got some wrong. I, I just, I wanted to just lay down and die. You know, the, <laughs> I was embarrassed, uh, humiliated. But what happened was, what would typically happen on, on those rare occasions is the newspaper, uh, uh, would, would, would print corrections, they would prominently print the corrections uh, and, and sort of set the record straight. And it, uh, now that didn't have to do with opinions or you know, editorial positions or anything, uh, those are all fair game. But in terms of the news pages, um, there was that. Now, I think most newspapers that I've ever encountered uh, had the same kind of procedure. Um, you wanna get it right? But on the occasions where we have failed to do so or got something wrong, we want to correct that and point that out. Now, I think newspapers, by and large, still do that. Um, and what is different now is um, 
and, and particularly uh, during the Trump years in our uh, federal government, um, the, the fake news became a way of a means of counterattacking something they just didn't like the, uh, to set aside facts um, by objectifying them and the reporters who wrote them as, um, as, as biased. And I think that was so harmful, so wrong. And, and our, not just our government, our culture is, is paying the price for the residual effects of that sowing of doubt, you know, I mean, we have to have some standards and, and, and most journalists that I know do have, have standards and kind of rigorously uh, adhere to them and are very sensitive to uh, getting the story right. I think fake news, it's, I, mean, I don't even like to say that phrase because it's so, um, it, it's, it's such an attack on norms that were of a type typical during that period of time. And still, you know, I mean, I think the, the response and the national discussion that is going on today about vaccines, um, you know, can you trust public health professionals? Can, well, you know, well, we have, there's a point where we have to be able uh, as citizens, uh, as, as uh, members of families, uh, as members of a community, we have to be able to have some um, common, you know, common understandings. And one of the things we have on the public health front is, you know, uh, the what the CDC does is very important, you know, that we have this common body of information uh, that it, that it will evolve based on new science and, um, and, and all this garbage, garbage about, you know, so-called fake news. I don't even like to say that because it's so detrimental to uh, norms of civil society. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you look back at your uh, career in journalism over the last several decades, what would you consider as um, some of the most challenging times that you faced? What, what kind of challenges did you see? I worked for a time in Washington um, when I was in graduate school and, and uh, was, a, was a Washington correspondent for our uh, newspaper in Nashville. But, but aside from those periods, um, I, I, my reporting, my journalism was very uh, community-based. Um, and, um, you know, so from the, from the middle 60s up through, um, you know, the, the late 70s, um, and, and at which point I got away from daily journalism and, you know, I was, uh, uh, I made my bread, you know, in, in the political environment, uh, working with uh, Governor Alexander, uh, but later returned to the, you know, reporting and the writing uh, life uh, as, a, as a columnist and a blogger and so forth. Um, but, but during my reporting uh, time, um, you know, some of the issues that were, uh, I mean, you didn't have to be in Washington, D.C. to um, understand the gravity of issues um, like the Vietnam War and the reaction to that and to the civil rights movement. A lot of 
uh, which importantly happened in, in Tennessee and in, in, in Nashville and in Memphis and Nashville in terms of the lunch counter sit-ins, you know, a lot of the activism that became so important to the movement. And so, um, you know, then there was the whole political transformation of the South that began, um, I kind of link it back to 1964, but all these other things, you know, the war, the reaction to it, the desegregation reaction to uh, Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court, those were all playing out in, in, in actual communities. And so, and even up, you know, as late as the early 70s, of course, the Vietnam War did not end until 75. But prior to that, um, in terms of race relations, uh, uh, implement, implementation of school desegregation was, was now playing out in terms of court rulings that required uh, crosstown busing of students. And that became very just profoundly, um, it was important, but profoundly disruptive of cities and and, and communities. And so I covered a lot of that um, uh, together with other, you know, colleagues on the Tennessean staff. And, um, you know, these were, these were hard issues to understand. And you were, you were now dealing with what were no longer, you know, cosmic uh, uh, policy issues uh, out of the nation's capital, but their, their ramifications for citizens in, in cities. Tell us about the books you authored. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> the, um, well, there have been three um, so far. Um, the first book was called The Coup, C-O-U-P. Um, and this was the story uh, that, had, that had been very close to me in my earliest time working for uh, uh, candidate Lamar Alexander, and then shortly after that, uh, gov governor, uh, Alexander. Um, the way he was actually uh, uh, sworn into office was very unusual. It was a situation that had never happened in any state in our country. And, the, and that was where a, um, the, the sitting governor, his predecessor, uh, it, it, that ad earlier administration was under uh, intense scrutiny by the FBI, the U.S. attorney, uh, for corruption and the type of corruption that uh, got the most public attention was what the news media called um, the uh, clemency for cash scandal in which um, a lot of, you know, bad people were being let out of prison for all the wrong reasons. Uh, people who were had not been adjudged as uh, deserving of clemency, uh, parole, in some cases outright pardons, but that that was all being decided um, uh, in these significant cases uh, on the basis of money and who was paying money to whom. And, uh, and, and this was clearly a case where the federal government, the, um, the U.S. attorneys, the FBI and others had had done an extraordinary job of uh, uh, ultimately exposing this. And, um, and uh, so Alexander had, had won the election in November of 78 to replace or to become the new governor following Governor Ray Blanton. 
and it develops that this um, clemency for cash scandal uh, had really been going on. And um, then this prior governor was, was in fact releasing people that shouldn't be released. Um, the U.S. attorney, the FBI, uh, talking with state legislative leaders and, and of course, Alexander and his people determined the only way to get that pardon uh, scandal stopped was to um, swear Alexander into office early. Um, the state constitution, and this is true of most states, uh, maybe all states, um, you know, give the governor uh, pretty much unquestioned power to pardon, to issue clemencies. And, and once they're issued, uh, it can't be reserved, uh, you know, reversed. Uh, no legislative committee, no court can call those people back once they're released. So the, the determination was made uh, uh, that the only way to stop it was to get Alexander, a new governor, in, uh, into office. Alexander, as I say, had been duly elected about three months before. We're now up to the middle of uh, January of 79. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, so he, uh, the, the, the leaders of the three branches of state government concurred, this is what needed to happen. And so uh, nobody wanted to have to do this, but it was, so anyway, uh, my book, The Coup, uh, kind of a play on that, that word, uh, uh, tells that story. It's a very dramatic story. It's a very human story. Um, and um, that was the coup. And so five years later, my next book came out um, called the, uh, the title was Crossing the Isle. Um, how, um, how, bar how bipartisanship had brought Tennessee, uh, again, my home state, uh, into the 21st century by good policy and, you know, uh, Republicans and Democrats working together. And, and anyway, so that crossing the aisle uh, was really my response to what was going on across our country and certainly in Washington, but, but really in most cities and states about, um, you know, the, I called it, um, uh, an angry period that we were now experiencing. Um, you know, it didn't exclusively have to do with Trump and his times, but it was, it was exacerbated by all that, of course. And, um, and so I felt that the story of Tennessee, um, which has produced a lot of extraordinary political leaders. Uh, I mean, going back to Cordell Hall, who was FDR's secretary of state, um, uh, Senator Albert Gore Sr., his son, Senator Al Gore, in a, in a later uh, period, of course, um, uh, Alexander, uh, others. Uh, Tennessee has produced some extraordinary public officials. And, um, and so crossing the aisle, you know, turned out to be well re reviewed and well received. And, and, I, and I'm which pleased me because I thought it was a, an important story. Um, so it was published uh, right before the election uh, 2018. And uh, that's turned out to be a, not only an important election, but it's still controversial among, you know, some sectors, right? So anyway, um, 
then the third book, which is just now out, uh, published just uh, uh, in this past month, it was um, called The Family Business. And, and I took a real turn there because uh, what I like to think of is the stories I've liked to write, I, I've enjoyed writing in, in long form uh, uh, are really stories about our politics and our history and our country uh, and our culture. And so this uh, the family business is the story about how um, uh, a very quiet company uh, based in Tennessee uh, became one of the most, um, most significant media companies um, in, in our country, if not the world, uh, that, that you may have never heard of. <laughs> and that is the uh, Ingram, it's now called Ingram Content Group. It began as Ingram book company, a book a distributor, kind of a, a very much a middleman early in its life, began in 1970. And so this, um, uh, the, the topic actually came to, to me in some conversations about how Ingram was now approaching um, its 50th birthday. And, uh, you know, significant milestone for for any, any business and particularly any family business, Ingram is owned by the Ingram family and very um, respected, but very, you know, quiet private family. Uh, the company it is, uh, remains uh, privately held. And um, so this book is, is, is chiefly, of course, a story about how that business, that company came to be. Um, but it's also, sort of a tribute to um, the notion of a family business. You know, uh, your, your business may be a family business. Uh, you know, many, many are. And, 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 it's, and that's the kind of work that's not easy. You know, not just because of family dynamics and how they uh, uh, are different uh, from case to case, but that you have so many that uh, uh, survive, many thrive, uh, and that's not easy. And so, how do you how do you make um, progress and survive and thrive as a family business? And of course, in this particular case of Ingram, it's an interesting story um, about how how the world of books has been transformed. You know, over fifty years. My my word, just imagine. A, remember all of those changes, you know, the digitization of printed books. You know, there was a period in the, in the late nineties, early 2000 of, um, would the printed book have a future, you know, or was it just all going to go away and we're going to be reading, um, you know, Shakespeare and Hemingway and only on digital devices and, you know, that, that alone was a disruptive idea. It was certainly significant to um, people who, who make and also sell uh, and certainly who distribute in between from between publishers and bookstores, uh, you know, how they were having to consider their future, their options. And so the family business tells the story of the first 50 years, uh, I might say, of Ingram and how it became through uh, really some um, 
creative, innovative leadership, uh, an originator of a lot of very important um, ways of doing that work. And of course, what we've learned since is that um, it, it didn't have to be either or. Uh, the, the, the chairman CEO of Ingram Content Group today, uh, Mr. John Ingram, um, uh, said at one point in the, uh, in the late 90s that he says, well, uh, it, it does not have to be an either or world for all of us in the book business. It will more likely be an either and. In other words, you, you could consume what you want to read uh, into the future in a printed book form or on a screen. And that's turned out to be true. So this, this third book, you know, is about uh, how all of that has been quite successful but in a very quiet way. And it, at key points, um, benefited not only from uh, innovations, I mean, some significant innovations that help that industry work right now, um, but also more of a, an entrepreneurial spirit among its leadership team and, its, uh, and all of its people. Awesome. So where, where do we find this book? We had an event um, uh, on Facebook just this past uh, week originating uh, from Parnassus Bookstore, uh, one of our important uh, independent booksellers uh, here in Nashville, uh, Facebook Live event with, with Mr. John Ingram. And that, uh, uh, I, I might say that that uh, conversation is... Uh, is available at the Parnassus Books website. Um, I mean, we talked for maybe 45 minutes and, and to me, a very interesting conversation. So that's still around. Uh, uh, you can find it through Parnassus um, uh, and, and other independent bookstores and, and the chains, uh, uh, you know, uh, Barnes and Noble and so forth. Um, uh, also on Amazon. Uh, you can you can search for my name and the title, the family business, and uh, and and find it there too. Awesome. So, Kiel, are you still writing, and what's next for you? Yes, I am, and and very enjoyably. Um, I, I'm. I, I mean, I have to say, I'm grateful that I continue to uh, uh, you know be invited to to write a, a regular newspaper column um, for, you know, what they call the USA Today Tennessee Network. Uh, and uh, Tennessean, uh, you know, is the morning paper in my, my hometown. Um, also in that network is the Commercial Appeal in Memphis and the Knoxville News Sentinel and, and other papers around our state. So I do that. Um, I developed a, um, a blog uh, called, the, called the Field Notes going back over um, the past um, couple of years, the Field Notes. Uh, my, my, my website is, is called is, uh, uh, keelhunt1word.com and you can find the Field Notes uh, by going there. Um, and then uh, I, I enjoy, you know, the, the book making process. Um, 
and I'm at I'm at work now on a fourth, what we you know, uh, God willing, will be a fourth book, uh, which is um, yet again different. It's really more of a biography of a significant person um, in the South, member of the judiciary, um, who's just retiring, and so. That, um, you know, again, involves the same kind of process of talking through the story, developing sources. Uh, and, um, and I just, you know, there's not much in terms of the world of work that I would rather be doing than what I'm doing. Uh, and I would invite everybody to have a look at one or another or all of that, you know, and, uh, and uh, urge me on. <laughs> awesome. Well, Keel, it's been a pleasure talking to you, learning about, uh, you know, your career, your background, as well as the books that you wrote. Um, I'm sure that the audience will check out your website and you'll see interaction on, on the field notes. Um, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for sharing uh, about the Ingram book. Well, yes. And thank you, Rajiv. I, I just want to say that I think you're doing a very important work with your podcast and you're helping uh, reveal parts of our culture and how people go through changes and personal evolutions. And these stories are in many ways the most important. Absolutely. Thank you very much.